We hurtled into outer space and navigate the ocean floor. Looking in and looking out, life was meant for more. Shapes to girls, shapes sisters with intrepid hosts, Andre and Azariah. Shapes to girls, shapes diving deeper and flying higher. Shapes Yes, season two, folks. Start of season two, and we thought that we'd start this season talking about death. The reason for that is that we reckon that death and life are actually really intimately connected. So if we're going to talk about life, I guess we think we need to talk about death. Absolutely, because we at Shapeshifters like to think about stories, narratives, and a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think as we learn to come to terms with the end point... It can help us with the middle and help us to redefine the beginning as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's kind of a common idea in a lot of uh, thinking about what brings meaning to life. <clears throat> Sometimes people describe it a bit like a book, that our lives have uh, meaning because we're always at some part or some part of a chapter yeah. in the wider book. If okay. it didn't have an end, then that would affect the meaning that we can make of okay. our lives. I enjoy writing short stories and... I used to write these stories that would go on and on and on. I wouldn't quite finish them. But then I went to a short story writing course and we were told we had to produce um, stories of just 2,000 words. And having that, that limit, having that discipline, and what the teacher taught us was until you get to the end, you don't know what the story means. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that to be so true for those stories. So that works for our lives as well. So that kind of having an, an ending in sight... Yeah, <clears throat> an end in view, which ultimately we can describe that as a death. Yeah, uh, actually helps us to focus in on life and on what we're doing in the present moment. I think it does. It's um, it, it puts a frame around the picture of our lives. It helps our lives to make sense. I find this when I'm writing as well that if uh-huh. I've got a whole day stretching out in front of me, yeah, and I have no kind of deadline in terms of reaching a point by say lunchtime yeah then i tend to actually not achieve very much because there's a sense of drift and aimlessness yeah and uh, I, I sort of have a sense that deadlines and boundary yeah. points uh cut off points and deadlines yeah. are sort of forms of that yeah. death coming into the process i think we have to have our eyes wide open i remember as a teenager I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic, and, and, and so, that, so my coordination is always there. I remember as a teenager coming out of my bedroom at home and just walking straight into a wall and, uh, and having to go to A&E and get my nose checked out and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and I think the boundary of death is something that many of us hit and, 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 um, and we're not ready. And I hope that this podcast can help us to open our eyes um, so that we can see um, and if we can see that there is an ending, it can help us with the journey that we're on, give us more intention, a sense of more energy drive. I, um, well, both of us are involved in, in death. And a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a funeral and the funeral director, as he was driving away from the funeral, I said to him, you're dealing with death day in, day out. What does it make you think about life? And he said, it makes you realize that every moment counts. Yeah. 
you mustn't postpone the things you want to do thinking I'll get around to that because uh, we don't know when we don't know uh, when our uh, time's going to end and I think that the, the thing about being ready for it I don't think we talk about it so much in, in this culture uh, and therefore because it's not articulated people don't necessarily feel very prepared when death comes not necessarily just their own death, but the death of people close to them as well. Yeah, I don't think we're always that good at it. I'm grateful that um, in the church is beginning to look at it, the Anglican Church. There's a thing called Grave Talk where you invite people to come round and ask questions like, you know, what songs do you want at your funeral? How do you want to be remembered? Um, and, 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 and what sort of burial would you like? And it helps people to begin to articulate this stuff. I've also been to something called Death Cafe, wow. which um, is part of the natural death movement. And uh, again, how does that work? So people sit around eating yeah, so, cake? And yeah, you have any cake and coffee. You're talking um, about death? Uh, yeah, it's whatever agenda you bring. So there's a couple of facilitators, the one I went to, there's a, a therapist and a nurse. Mm-hmm. And they just said, what do you want to talk about? And it was a whole range of things. Some people just wanted to rehearse stories of loved ones who, who had gone. Other people um, were afraid of their own death and wanted to know what sort of options they could have for burial. And just a really free-flowing conversation. And why, why, whilst you might sometimes think, you know, death is something um, that's a, a taboo topic that we shouldn't be spoken about, that it's depressing... There's so much laughter in life and so much bonding collectively between mm. this dozen strangers um, who came to know one another and came to know that common humanity. And I think because part of humanity is, is the fact that it's finite. There is some kind of uh, intrinsic link, I think, between that facing of death and humour and life and yeah. uh, appreciation, perhaps, for the present moment and where we, where we are now in our lives. And it's always struck me, uh, I've done a few funerals as a, as a priest, and it's always struck me that there's usually somebody at a funeral who can't stop uh, giggling, or after the funeral uh, gets kind of very silly and enjoys themselves a lot by being funny. Yeah. And uh, there seems to be this kind of link between the that. end of something yeah. and a kind of joyous humour. Yeah. People, we call it corpsing, don't we? Yes. When people start laughing when they're not meant to, like when the newsreader starts laughing or something, delivering some serious news or, or what have you. So that's interesting that there is, that there is this link between... Because laughter is breath, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and death is, is the end of breath. And, um, and so there, there is this connection somehow. Well, there's this interesting thing about corpsing uh, from a performance point of view. <clears throat> that, of course, comedians particularly talk about dying on stage if their yeah. act's going down badly mm. or it's going down like a lead balloon which yes. sounds uh-huh. like a kind of yes. collapse or a death yeah. of assault. Yeah, yeah, sinking into a metaphorical grave. Sinking, yeah, collapsing yeah. to the ground. Uh-huh. Um, and there's and yet there's also something about, I think, going on stage that in itself is a kind of death because by doing that, by shifting into that public space and being seen yeah. mm-hmm. <clears throat> by an audience or by other mm-hmm. actors that you might be working with mm-hmm. or other comedians, the person is allowing themselves to let go of their own, funnily enough, their own ego yeah. for that uh-huh. period of time yeah. because they're moving out of a, a zone that they can somewhat yeah. control, mm-hmm. which is their own identity. Yeah into a zone that is rather in the hands of the audience yes. and other people around them. Yeah, and you don't even have to be professional. So I, was, I know I've got some friends who 
was speaking about doing a reading at a wedding and how nervous they were and how anxious they were about doing this reading at the wedding. Um, or um, I was recently at a, kara- um, a karaoke thing, you know, and people oh, yeah. taking the confidence to go and to sing. And so it can be, you don't have to be professional to experience this, this mini death on stage. So many people I know who are well-educated and earning um, uh, high figures they are used to being successful and confident, but then you ask them to do certain things, and because they can't guarantee success, they won't take the risk. Um, yeah. Which feels like, you know, they're not willing to go through that death process. I, I haven't really thought about this a whole lot before, but it strikes me now that we're talking that there's something about being in a public space and being visible to other people that actually um, evicts us from our usual hiding places of being in our normal zone of identity. Yeah. And I think actors kind of know this well. Um, any performer, I suppose, would know that well. And it feels like, when I've done this from a performance point of view, that you're very vulnerable, that something has died in terms of your defence mechanisms and that one has become really wide open to what's going on and the attention to the details and the awareness levels go up. Yeah. when one is in that kind of space, much more so than in regular life. Yes. Uh, so I think that, that kind of movement into a different kind of space for performance is, a, mm. is itself a form of mini-death. But there are others, of course. Yeah, of course. I, I think if you're open to, to giving something in a presentation, at work, say, or a performance on the stage, say, you're also open to receiving something. I think so many of us miss out on the reception of something because we're afraid we don't have anything to give. But it's actually in the act of giving that we receive. And it's, it's often in that sequence when we take the risk of stepping up there, when we take the risk of having a difficult conversation, be a mini-death of sorts, a confrontation. Some of us, we avoid, we don't want to have the difficult, want to sweep things under the carpet, let yeah. sleeping dogs lie, as it were. Yeah. Um, but when we have courage to face up to our fears um, as the person might reject us. You know, I, I know so many um, uh, young single friends who who are attracted to somebody else, but they're dead and ask um, for, you know, would you like to have a date with me or whatever, um, because they're so afraid of, of the rejection that they don't even, they're not willing to go through the mini-death. Um, That's interesting, because I think from a psychological point of view, that when people have had a difficult experience in their yeah. lives, uh-huh. that, that can be like a mini-death. So the tendency then is to avoid anything that might push you back into that experience again. Um, so it may have been that you had a terrible breakup, for example, with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and it might make somebody a little bit shy of going back into a relationship because that might they might get that sort of feeling again, that... that terrible feeling of rejection maybe might come back again and so we can end up actually a bit limited or limiting ourselves because of these previous mini deaths if we seek to avoid them and in a way it's very similar to talking about the death as in the end of life altogether Mm -hmm. that it's only I think when we face these things (coughs) that when we like uh, go back to those places those dead places and articulate maybe what's happened there which is the power of words to connect up the emotions and feelings and experience to maybe new life 
that uh, it's possible to move forward. Yeah. I, I think as a therapist, I often find that people have sort of retreated from all of these areas that they see as death areas yeah. and have actually caged themselves into quite a small space where there's uh-huh. not much room left okay. to manoeuvre. So there is... Um, in the the Gospels, which are biographies about the life of Jesus, um, in uh, the biography written by Mark, there's this uh, uh, just a few sentences that said that Jesus goes into the wilderness. Uh, he was tempted. He was with the wild beasts, and then angels came to minister to him. And and death is like a wild beast, and we have to unless we can come to peace and coexist with these wild beasts, these powerful energies yeah. around us, yeah. um, we don't get to that ministering by angels bit. We don't arrive at the sequence of peace and integration. And death yeah. is part of life. It shapes life. Yeah. Um, it enables life in some ways. That's really interesting because that, for me, gets us into this question about taking time to retreat from life and to separate a bit from the normal rhythms of yeah. life uh, in order to enter into life. So it's kind of like a death or retreat from normal life mm-hmm. in order to enter in with energy, vigour and joy, perhaps, yes. to the regular rhythms. Yeah. So that the, in, in some faith traditions, that might be called Sabbath. And so for me, and I'm grappling with this at the moment myself, it's something about stopping the normal patterns and that is a kind of form of death and it can feel quite awkward not to answer emails. Not to open emails. Not to answer or yeah. open or look at and yeah. maybe not to open the computer even. Yeah. Um, and to just take time out from the regular stuff. And that that seems to be a, a sort of stopping of something in order for the next day to begin. Yeah, yes. And I actually found, I went on a silent retreat once, and a silent retreat is uh, a period of time when you have a chance to just reflect on uh, your spiritual uh, life, but also it's a putting down of the usual distractions and things that occupy our lives. And I went on just three days of going away to do this. And I thought this would sound, that this would be great. And uh, as an introvert, I thought this couldn't be better three days to myself. Well, after a day and a half, I was climbing the walls. I was beside myself because I was so used to being distracted by all the usual paraphernalia of social media or uh, whatever that I found it very difficult, actually, to cope with that solitude and that separation from the normal rhythm. So I actually ran away from the retreat, effectively, after a day and a half. And I think that it's sometimes quite hard to really engage with yeah. this idea. Do you think you'd like to complete so it? So I'd like to go back and complete it. So that's yeah. a challenge that I've yeah. set myself, is to go back to probably the same place and do the whole three days. And stay with those wild beasts. And stay with the wild beasts in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, rather than sort of running back into the town. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. I think silence... Um, uh, there's a, a book uh, called the, the Book of Quiet or, or the Book of Silence by Sarah Maitland, and she describes um, uh, how prisoners in solitary confinement can almost go mad, yeah. and yeah. the silence becomes so oppressive. Yeah. Whereas 
people who choose silence can find it very liberating. And I think there's something around um, us going into this with our eyes open and knowing that we can step into it, but we can step out of it as you, you know, chose to step out of it, but, but, but you, you could step out of it. Um, I, I think um, the thing of silence, the thing of solitude, um, being on our own, we're often mm. not that good at being on our own. Mm. Um, and um, I think we need to learn how to do that, how to encompass that mini death. Uh, so, as part of families, I think we have to come away from our families in order to to have something to offer our families when we come back in. So, there's again, it's the thing of you're coming away in order to recharge, in order to then give something back yeah, to the system. Cert- there's certainly a rhythm to that, but I yeah. think that it's not all one thing. It's not all separation, and it's not all kind of being in the middle of yeah. uh, the normal pattern of life. Uh, I mean, I happen to think that we're prob- probably built for relationship, that people are relational creatures, and that relations with other people are, are really important to yeah. our sense of humanity, identity, and self. Uh, but it's, it is interesting when we think about death, that that is the ultimate sort of moment of breakage, not just between the person who's gone and the person who remains, but it's also a kind of moment in a sense of silence uh, where there is no more mm. communication as we understand it normally. Yes. Yes. And um, in terms of thinking about how to, sort of what to say that might be helpful for people who are grappling with this mm. at the moment, I think for me one of the things that, that, that may be worth saying is the power of imagination to think past the point at which something dies or ends that there may be something the other side of that chasm there may be something on the other side of the bridge Um, so for example when I'm working with people who are bereaved um, they often say they'd like things to go back to the way they were before the person they knew died and that's, that's not possible but what is possible is to go back and as it were pull threads I describe them as threads in a tapestry that can be pulled from life as it was before into the future. Hmm. So 